welcome to creating wealth through passive apartment investing podcast in this show we will discuss about best and worst experiences about passive and active apartment investing and i am your host ramakrishna let's begin the show today's our guest is gino barbaro from jekan gino welcome gino rama thank you for having me on podcast how you doing i'm doing good thank you a little bit about gino gino barbaro is an investor business owner author and entrepreneur as an entrepreneur he has grown his real estate portfolio to over 1500 multifamily units and is teaching others how to do the same gino is the co-founder of jekan gino a multifamily real estate education company that offers coaching and training in real estate founded upon their proprietary framework of buy right manage right finance right is a best selling author of three books with that gino would you like to add anything to your background I have six kids, proud owner. I would like to say, you know, six children. Uh, my wife was just in here helping me out. So I've got an amazing spouse. I love my family and I do a multifamily and I've transitioned into multifamily because of my family. Awesome. And how did you get started into real estate and multifamily? Rama, that's a great question. When I started out, you know, I got out of college many, many years ago. I went right into the corporate world. My father had a restaurant. He was an immigrant from Italy. And I just didn't like the corporate world. I didn't like sitting in a cubicle. I didn't like commuting down to New York City every day. And I just felt the grind. I just wanted to start my own business. And all I knew was the restaurant space. So I went in uh, and I opened up a restaurant back in 1994. And I had the restaurant for over 20 years. Ironically, we just just sold it but now in february 2 months before the pandemic you know came full blown and we're in new york so i was blessed to be able to sell it but i was in the restaurant business for a long time and i said to myself you know the 2008 recession for me was a pandemic it was I mean, all of a sudden it's like i'm working harder i'm making less money i don't like what i'm doing i don't really have a business i feel like i have a job and my parents always owned investment properties they didn't have the big multifamily units they had a, you know they had a duplex a triplex they owned the building thing with the restaurant was in. So I knew real estate was a great avenue. I just didn't know how to get into it because, you know, at the time in 2008, 2009, there wasn't many deals in New York that you could cash flow with, right? I was just looking in the wrong places. So I said to myself, I want to get into this multifamily because I can still be working at the restaurant and I can do it quote unquote as you'd like to say passively on the side. I was fortunate enough to meet Jake back in 2009. He was a pharmaceutical rep uh, at the time getting caterings out of my restaurant. He was bringing them to doctors offices and Jake had the itch too. He's like, I've got to leave New York. I can't stay in here anymore. In 2011, he picks up, he leaves and he goes down to Knoxville, Tennessee. And at the time, I honestly didn't even know where Knoxville, Tennessee was. I said Jake when you get down there let's look at some deals together because I'm I want to get into multifamily I I've tried mobile home parks I've tried the self storage I I just don't like any of those spaces I like multifamily I just knew that it was a place for people to live and I knew intuitively that I could build a business from it so he gets down there 2011 it, it takes us about 18 months to find that first deal it, it's not hard it's not easy when you first start out you have no credibility you don't really have a business plan I didn't know what I was looking at right now we look at mom and pops I didn't have a framework we were just sort of winging it I didn't know how to underwrite a deal and I didn't didn't know what I was what, what I was looking for but it was still difficult that's why it took us 18 months to find that first deal and after that first deal things started to fall into place business started to make more sense to me and we got our parameters and Jake was living in the market so he was actually we created the property management company we were managing our own assets and from there we just started scaling up and continuing to buy deals awesome thanks for sharing that and what is your philosophy behind buy right manage right and finance right framework 
Well, for us, when we bought our first deal, you know, when you first do something for the first time, it's just all foreign to you. You have no idea what you're doing. But that from that first deal and into the second deal, we saw some things that were recurring. You know, Jake one day is sitting outside, he's cutting his grass and he looks at a wheelbarrow and he says to himself, wow, there's three legs there. And that's how the buy right, manage right, and finance right came out of. The buy right is the back leg of the wheelbarrow, right? The other side is the finance right. And the wheel is the constant motion, right? So to be, you know, and to be into, you know, have a strong investment in multifamily, you need to have those three pillars. You need to have a strong buy right, strong finance right, and the manager has got to be constantly in motion. If one of those is off, what's going to happen? Your wheelbarrow tips over. So every time we're buying a deal, we're always looking at it from that lens. If you buy it right, that pillar is done. You bought the property right, bam, done. If you're financing right, whether you're getting community financing, agency, owner financing, once the financing is done, it's done. You've got a good deal on the finance portion. Now, then you have the manager right. The manager right is constantly in motion. Whether you're managing the properties or you're getting third-party property management, that has to be executed. So from looking at it from that perspective, you need to have all three of those pieces, the framework working to have a really strong foundation for a multifamily investment to be successful. So true. So and what challenges you faced during your multifamily journey and how did you overcome them? I mean, there's all these challenges, right? I think the first thing that investors make a mistake on, especially myself, is we don't really set goals. I mean, when I first started back in 2002, I bought a four-unit property in New York. Ironically, sold that a year ago. Uh, I held it for a long time, but I was just buying things without knowing why I was buying things. And then I transitioned over to a mobile home park, right? I had a little extra money in the bank. My friend comes over and says, hey, I've got this person doing mobile home parks. I didn't know anything about mobile home parks. I didn't know what due diligence was. I didn't know what syndication was. And more importantly, why was I buying this deal? I mean, it it was called a passive deal, right? Obviously passive, I'm not doing anything. But at the same point, do I want to get into this niche? Do I know anything about the niche? I didn't have any investing goals. That was one of the biggest mistakes that I made early on, not knowing why I was putting money into a specific asset, right? I think the second thing for me was not picking a lane and staying in it. You know, shortly after that mobile home park, I crapped out on that deal. About a year later, things started to fall apart. I quickly rushed into a strip center, into a mixed-use property because it was the shiny object syndrome. It looked really nice. I love the deal, but there's so many things about that deal that I look back at now that I said I made so many mistakes. I didn't do due diligence. I did not select the market properly. I didn't know the space. I didn't know how to write a commercial lease. I didn't know about supply and demand. I didn't know about rent comparables. I didn't know about financing this deal properly. There were so many things that I didn't know about the deal and it was me, myself. Then I just said to myself, I need to find a way or a niche and just pick it and really learn it really well. And that's one of the things that I started doing with multifamily. I decided I see the demographics of multifamily. I see that it's really attractive to, to rent. I see the scalability. I see the tax benefits. I see so many good things about multifamily. Let me really learn it, right? And it was, it was the education that I needed. Ultimately, it's the education times action, which will equal your results. So you can get educated as much as you want. Finding the partner for me was the highlight. I didn't want to do it on my own. I wanted to partner up and work with somebody to hold, you know, each one of us accountable. And for me, Jake was that partner. I guess so many mistakes that I made in the beginning, uh, but the, one of the biggest ones was not picking the right niche and sticking with it and jumping from one to the next and being a novice. And then ultimately what happens when you do that is you make a mistake, you buy the deal, the deal goes bad. And then your mom says, you know, Gino, I told you real estate was risky. It's not the real estate that's risky. It's me that's risky because not really learning it and not really 
really getting down into the weeds and spending the time on myself and getting clear on why I'm actually getting into real estate. Awesome. And thanks for sharing that. So what's your view on multifamily space during COVID and going forward? Well, Rama, that's another great question. And it's a difficult one to answer because as you've seen over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we have so many experts out there and they're always telling us what's going to happen, but they have no accountability when they're wrong. Because if you go back six months ago, I, everyone is talking in March, wow, collections are going to be down in April. Collections are going to be down in May. Then in June, we actually instituted a daily tracker to, to start tracking our collections. And something really weird happened. The experts were all wrong. We didn't lose any collections. Actually, our economic occupancy is up at 90% now as opposed to pre-COVID when it was like, you know, 88, 89. So we were actually collecting more rent now than we were pre-COVID and we're back to growth mode. We're actually back because there's a big demand. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with the eviction process, with the CDC going out and doing these eviction moratoriums. Every market is different. I would tell all of the listeners out there, be careful of what market you're investing in because that's going to make the difference going forward. If you are in a more, you know, landlord friendly state, you're going to be, it's going to be a lot easier for you to collect rents. If you're in a tenant friendly state where they have evictions and, you know, I, I just heard yesterday that California is passing a law where they're allowing residents to go in and actually ask for a 25% decrease in their rents to their landlords. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. One of my students told me that I was pretty much flabbergasted. As we start losing property rights, that's going to affect us as multifamily owners. So my whole thing with, with COVID right now, you see what's happening with people going on and working remotely. There's going to be a big demand for our product right now, depending on what state you're in and what market you're in, that's going to affect how you're going to be able to do pricing. In Knoxville, Tennessee, for example, our market is very strong. We've got one of the top five markets in the United States for multifamily. I think the other ones are Lexington, uh, Knoxville. I forgot what the other three were, but they're, most of them are in the Southeast. Phoenix was, a, was another one. It really has to focus on where you're investing your money. And when you're reading these articles, we don't know what's going to happen in the future because these experts didn't know that stimulus was going to come out, that PPP money was going to come out, the CARES Act was going to come out, and now they're going to fund more, right? You don't know how long these markets are going to be closed down because I live in Florida right now. You know, I moved from New York to Florida three years ago. New York is still in shutdown mode. They have not opened up the restaurants. Where I live in Florida, we were closed for a couple of weeks. Our economy here has really not been impacted as, you know, nearly as much as what's going on in New York. Reopened, job growth is really pretty good down here. And population and migration patterns coming down here are just amazing. The, the real estate market actually on the residential side is booming because there's not enough supply and there's so much demand down here. So everyone out there, beware of where you're investing. Beware of the landlord tenant laws and beware of the policies that these governors and these local legislators want to, you know, impose because that's going to really affect your business, whether you're a restaurant, whether you're a bar, whether you're collecting, you know, rents from multifamily. That's really important. That's one thing that I really learned through COVID. And I think the other thing as an entrepreneur, please, everybody out there, don't make that mistake of just, you know, getting a piece of information and overreacting. Take your time and analyze it. Because I remember back in March when all these predictions of doom and gloom were happening, you know, we have a lot of entrepreneurs out there. I won't, won't, don't want to name any names, but a lot of gurus out there were just, you know, furloughing people and they were overreacting because that's what happened. It was just terrible news. Jake and I took the, you know, tact of saying, let's just slow down. Let's see where things go. Let's see where things shake out at the end of March and then we'll reassess in April. And what we ended up doing was just over communicating with our entire team, getting on weekly huddles, getting 
on daily morning huddles, end of day huddles, and making sure that we're communicating with our team members that, hey, we're in this for the long term. We're getting money from the government. We're going to be, you know, not laying anybody off. We're actually, what we had to do is we had to institute virtual leasing. We didn't have virtual leasing up until April. And that's one of the things that popped up through COVID where, you know what, you can't go in the office. You're an essential business, but you can't see your residents. So we had to go to a virtual leasing model. So out of that big problem came a huge opportunity for us. Now, I think once COVID subsides and things get back to normal, it, I think, you know, in the next six to 12 months, you're going to see, start seeing things open up. The virus is going to slow down. You're just going to have to be prepared for the next one because it's going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So, you know, tightening up your systems and over communicating with your team were two things that we uh, really took away from this pandemic. Would you share about your best apartment investing experience so far? We have a few of them. I mean, I can always go back to my first one, which was, you know, it was on the market for 18 months to two years. It was you know, back in 2013. You know, back then people always say, oh, I wish it was back then. I wish we had the deals we had back then. But you know, when we go back in history, 2013 GDP growth was 1%. It, it was a slow time in the economy. There was no consumer sentiment. Rents for one bedrooms in our market were $350. So when you're basing it on NOI, your valuation is going to be down. Cap rates were higher because there was a lot more risk in the market. We didn't know what was going to happen with the economy. So for us, that deal, I mean, it was for us amazing in a couple of parts. We actually had somebody say yes to our offer. We probably paid a little too much. We paid $600,000 for 25 units at the time. But what was great about that deal, it really shattered a lot of my limiting beliefs. Number one, that I could do a deal, right? Number two, we got owner financing on that deal. We had 10% owner financing on the first deal. So a $600,000 deal, we only needed to come up with $60,000. And from that, you you take, you know, the 10% down payment, you got a 10% note, that $60,000 with closing costs, we only needed $83,000 on that first deal to own a $600,000 asset. So I saw the power of real estate from that first deal, being able to use owner financing, be creative and say, you know what, money is not problem. Money is not my limiting belief that's allowing me to stop me from getting into real estate and multifamily specifically. It's really solving problems for the other side because they were mom and pop sellers. It was a hard property to finance. It was a little ugly. It was weekly renters. There's a lot of different issues going on. So for me, that first deal was, well, I'll always remember, we still own the deal. We refinance the proceeds out. That 25 units is still paying us every single month. So, you know, the buy and hold strategy for, for us was really amazing on that deal. But, you know, fast forward four deals after that, we bought a 281 unit property. It was a same thing, mom and pop, but it was a nice asset, two different assets, 156 units and, uh, and I think 136. And what was great about that deal was they just wanted to sell. They built them and they had off, they had the property on the market for $12.6 million. We told them, you know, that was a little high. Can you come back with a different offer? They came back at $11 million and they would hold the note, the down payment for 20%. So we were able to buy an $11 million asset with no money down. We actually got money closing on that deal. And that's another one of those where, you know, people say it can't be done. It can't be done. And, you know, entrepreneurs out there are always trying to figure out a way how to do it. So ironically enough, that deal, we closed with $110,000 in our bank account on that deal. And, you know, four years later, we've been able to refinance all the proceeds out, pay the seller his note, his, his uh, note off. And, you know, we're still continuing to uh, run that property. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. And would you share any your first apartment investing experience? Oh, my worst. <laughs> we, we don't have enough time on the show for that. Um, the, the worst one was the uh, strip center. After I bought the mobile home park was just one of those where, you know, you make a mistake. It's your very first one. But that one I should have learned from. The second one should have never 
never done it because I overpaid on the property, number one. Number two, I didn't know the market itself. There was no job growth. There was no population growth. There was no demand for my product. I thought I'm buying a strip mall with a warehouse behind. And what happened, the market really turned, the economy really soured. So plumbers, electricians, they went on, all went out of business. But then I had second floor office space, five, 600 unit office spaces. I thought, wow, this is going to be easy to rent. A lawyer, an accountant, those offices stayed vacant for years because I didn't understand the market. I overpaid on the property. I bought the property. When I went into due diligence, I did no legal due diligence. I did, but I didn't do it properly. And my attorney was terrible. There were so many different violations where there was no water system in the property. There was no fire protection system on the property. A lot of the tenants had no certificates of occupancy for the um, retail spaces. Some of the apartments were being used as residential when they were not zoned for residential. They were commercial. There were so many different hazards. There was an oil tank buried in the property, which I had to remediate. There was so many different issues on this property. And, you know, I survived it, but there's such a big learning lesson for me that, you know, the two biggest and most important words in investing are due diligence. Get everything done on the front end, learn as much as possible, do a really good job on your inspections and make sure you hire the right team members because that attorney did not do a good job for me. I should have probably walked away in the property because I had every right to, but it was one of those where I, we like to call it get there itis. It was a nice property and I had a plan for it. And you know, it was my worst one, but when I look back at it, that was the property that really inspired me and motivated me to go into multifamily and to really say, you know what? I've made so many mistakes. I want to find and follow a plan that I can learn on. And this was just the ideal one. I mean, so I'm trying to think of all the other mistakes that I, that I, I mean, I could list so many more, but really overpaying, not having a plan, not having the right team members, not performing proper due diligence. You guys, write all those down and it's a recurring theme. And for me, that was the impetus to get into multifamily. Awesome. And what is your current forecast on share something you're excited about now? Current forecast for us, it's, it's pretty weird, but we're finding is a lot of these smaller deals are popping up. We just closed on a 50 unit deal back in March with students and, you know, 90s build brick. I wish it was a lot bigger, but it wasn't. And now we just two weeks ago closed on a 48 unit deal that we're going to turn into 50 units. Same thing, 84 build brick, really good price point. And it's all about the buy right portion because we're going to refinance these properties and within the next 18 months, you know, extract all of our capital. But it seems like these really, really big deals right now, there's so much competition and there's so much money in the market that we're getting outbid. And I think one thing that the listeners have to be careful of in this part of the market cycle is looking at these older assets built in the late 60s, early 70s with cast iron plumbing, older roofs, older driveways, a lot of deferred maintenance. They're really getting bid up right now. You're buying them at such a low cap rate that you have to put so much capital into them that if you're buying at this high point and the market does turn, it's going to be a little scary. I think the other thing is we just have to be careful with rent growth. Some markets are going to experience a little bit of rent growth. If you're underwriting for you know rent growth, maybe this next six to 12 months, there's no rent growth right now. I'm not sure you really have to know your market. Those are two things that I'm really concerned about in this part of the market. But right now for us, looking at these smaller deals where the mom and pop investor can't take down a $3 million deal and the institution, you know what? That's too small for me. I don't want to bother. That's been our sweet spot for the last six months. And for us, it's really incumbent upon where you are in the market. Where we are, there's a lot of money flowing into these markets because you're not placing money in New York City. You're not placing money in LA because 
capital is leaving there. They're coming down to where we are. Hopefully in the next six to 12 months, we'll get a little bit of a reset. We'll have, we'll see how the operators are performing. You know, the manage right, we thought more operators would be, you know, delinquent. There'd be more deals in forbearance right now. And I don't think that's the case. I thought there'd be more of a, you know, valuation through operation, not just renovation. We thought there'd be more, more operators in trouble. I think in the next six to 12 months, there may be. So that, that may be the solution right there. I think the other thing we need to watch out is these underwriters and these syndicators who have bought deals on IO for the last two to three years. Once their deals go off of interest only, have they gotten those rent growths? Have they been able to, you know, put the value on there? Have, have they been able to raise rents? A lot of those deals are going to be coming out of IO in principal and interest resetting. Those may be opportunities for, you know, operators to buy. Awesome. And thanks for sharing that. Great points. So and one advice that impacted you, Gino? One advice that impacted me, for me, going to life coaching school really impacted me because it was all about personal development. And, you know, I look back at my journey with my father. I had an amazing relationship with my dad. He, you know, at eight years old, I'd go to work with him. And when I opened the restaurant back, you know, when I was younger, I opened it and I did it. And then when my dad passed away back in 2007, right before the recession, I sat there and I, you know, looking back at it, I thought to myself, am I building my dream or am I building my dad's dream? And it was really hard for me going through coaching school and going through that personal development. And, and I dawned upon me, you know, the restaurant wasn't my dream. That's probably why I didn't like it. That's probably why I didn't have all my energy and all my effort into it. When my dad was there, it was a little bit different. We we're doing it together. I enjoyed it. But when he passed away, I'm by myself there and I just don't like it anymore. So for me, for everyone, you know, listening on the call, that's an important question to ask yourself. Are you building your own dream or are you building someone else's dream? And if you're building someone else's dream and you enjoy your job, that's fine. But if you don't question yourself and ask yourself, what does your dream look like? For me, my dream looked like building a nice little successful business. I can grow it as much as I want to. I can include my family into my business, which I'm doing with Jake and Gino, including my wife and, you know, the trainings and my son, they're all going to the boot camps. You know, I'm bringing them down to when I'm doing closings on the deal. That's what my dream is right now. And I think everybody focus on what your why is. Why are you doing something? Why are you investing in real estate? Why are you working for a job? Think about that. Become clear in your life and start setting goals based on your values and based on what your beliefs are. Yeah, so right. And any of your personal habits that help you to be successful? Well, I mean, for me, I was just lucky to marry my wife. I mean, she's an amazing person. And it's really when you go into business, you know, you have to have a really great relationship with, with your partner, whether it's your business partner or your spouse. And for my wife, she gave me a lot of leeway. She had a lot of trust in me. And she never said to me, oh, you've got to come home, put the kids to bed or whatever. She knew I was building a business. She knew I was working. So we worked together. And then it's the same thing with the partnership with Jake. You know, finding a partner who is going to hold you accountable, finding a partner who's going to help you out, finding a partner who's going to be there for you, for me, was really important. As far as the personal habits, for me, doing a lot of reading, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I just love to read as far as personal development books, as far as looking, reading real estate books, as far as listening to podcasts, I do that all. And I try to keep a positive message going into my mind every day. And you know, the other thing is obviously you need to get out, you need to, you know, work out, jog. I play tennis with the kids. I do a lot of walking. So keeping my mind fresh and just getting off of that, you know, merry-go-round of we like to call the media, staying away from that. That's nothing you can control. I try to control whatever I can in my life. And obviously, you know, every now and again, you fall back into it, but when you start falling 
falling back into it, you see yourself, you need to get out of that. You need to stay positive and just continue to put those positive messages in. Right. And any one book that impacted your life and what way? You know, all of the gurus today teach what I think is from Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. Yep. I mean, his book, it's an amazing book. When you first read it, I'll guarantee everyone out there when they first read it, they're probably like, oh, this is nonsense. What was he talking about? Create a picture, your subconscious. They're probably going to say to themselves, but read it again. And then you'll start saying to yourself, wow, this stuff really works. And you know, it's the power of your mind really. And when you start reading it, you say to yourself, I can start implementing this. And all of the successful people out there are implementing what Napoleon Hill's talking about, whether it's a Tony Robbins, Zig Ziglar, they're all teaching, you know, Napoleon Hill's ideas. Awesome. And how are you giving back to community? Giving back to the community. It's really for me being a role model to my kids. Number one, number two, for us, we have a company called Rand Cares. Um, we do a Thanksgiving drive every year. We feed some of the children in East Tennessee. Uh, we have also our Rand property management, our property management team out there, maintenance techs. Last year, we went out and we built a playground for the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, for me personally, every year for the last 15 years, this year, I may not be able to go up to New York, but what I would do is every year on Thanksgiving, I would drive down to Harlem and I would work with uh, the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal. They were Catholic brothers and priests who you know do mission work and work with the poor. And you know, for me, I was you know blessed to be able to go down Thanksgiving and be able to cook for the neighborhood. We was about 150 people in that neighborhood, and I would do that for Thanksgiving, and I would do that for uh, the Fourth of July. So that was you know those were my mission. One of my gifts that God gave me was to cook. So I love to cook. So going down there and sharing meals with people, especially during the holidays, especially when people are all alone. You know, I'm lucky enough to have a, a nice you know, big family and, you know, every holiday we're always together, but people really need to look around and see what's going on. There's so many lonely people and be able to share a meal with someone and be able to really cook them an Italian slash American, you know, Thanksgiving. It was just, it's just a lot of fun and just to help people out and be able to, to support during the holidays is a lot of fun for us. Awesome. And how can listeners can connect with you, Gino? Um, Rama, real easy. Just go to jakeandgino.com. Uh, we have all our resources there. We have our podcast there. We have our blogs there. With Jake and I just wrote a book, The Honeybee. If anybody wants a copy, just you know, email me, Gino at jakeandgino.com. And I'll just send you a PDF copy of the honeybee. It's a, a parable that Jake and I wrote about creating multiple streams of revenue in real estate. Awesome. Thank you, Gino. I really enjoyed the conversation. Rama, thank you very much. And thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. If you like the show, please subscribe, share, rate, and review. And if you want to connect with me, please send me a message info at ushacapital.com. Thank you for listening. Creating wealth through passive apartment investing podcast i hope you learned something from the show see you in the next episode thank you any information provided from these shows are educational purpose only as always please consult with your own cpa legal and financial advisor before investing